All right. So, again, Deuteronomy, the 23rd chapter tonight. Got to enjoy our study of the word of the Lord. Tonight, just as a bad chapter and the other chapters of the different laws for Israel. Uh, and once they enter into the land, so tonight we're going to look at those excluded from the assembly, how to deal with the attendance in the camp, and other uh, miscellaneous laws concerning their relations to one another, including how they were to treat slaves, um, sexual purity among the daughters and the sons. Charging interest, making vows, and uh, respecting your neighbor's property. So, uh, all these laws we're going to look at uh, tonight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Uh, bless our time as we study your word tonight, Lord, through your spirit. Illuminate your truth to us tonight. May refresh us by your word, encourage us in the spirit by your word. Strengthen us, Lord. With the strength that Spirit provides. In Christ's name, amen. Alright. So, we'll look at this section by section as we always do. So, beginning the first section, I think covers verse 7, 8 verses. So, it says here, uh, no one shall No one who is emasculated. Uh, the ESV says no one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organs are cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. No one born of a forbidden union uh, may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever, because they did not meet you with bread or with water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia, to curse you. But the Lord your God will not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you. This is the uh, because the Lord your God loves you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. You should not abhor the Edomite and Edomite, for he is your brother. You should not abhor an Egyptian because you were a sojourner in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. So, First section here talks about eunuchs. Eunuchs are men who are, you know, castrated, basically, or emasculated is a more modern uh, word. So this emasculation dealt with either a birth defect or by accident or by deliberate emasculation. So this deals with worshiping in the assembly. Now, generally, 
the term assembly uh, refers to Israel when they gathered at Fort Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai as a, a people. But uh, of course, this chapter, as all the other ones, uh, refer to them when they gathered in the land, in the promised land, to, to worship. So when it says, who are emasculated by crushing or mutilation, this is talking about uh, probably, most likely refers to men uh, who were made units in the context of pagan worship. You know, because remember, Israel was going through this foreign land, and some of the people in Israel were influenced by the worship of the pagans. So part of one of the rituals of paganism was for men to uh, emasculate themselves. And so that was uh, that was practicing paganism in doing that, you know, and emasculating themselves. And why was that wrong? Because those men would not have a seed. They would not be able to reproduce if they did that. So that was, in essence, an, uh, an abomination uh, to the Lord. So these men who, 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 who did this, especially uh, on purpose, they were uh, committing an abomination uh, to the Lord. So this was, again, an act of uh, pagan worship, damaging a male's sexual potential. That was what the Canaanites did. That's something that the pagans did. So, again, remember, uh, I, know I, I know I keep saying this, remember all these laws that God was giving them was his way of separating his people from the pagans and what the pagans were doing. So, in essence, what God is, what God is telling Israel not to do something is because the pagans were doing it. You know, for, for most of them. And the things that he tells them to do, pagans were not doing. Like how to treat women. God tells them how to treat women. Why? Because the pagans didn't treat women right. Okay? If he's telling them that a man uh, who emasculates himself can't participate in, in, in worship, that's because that's what the pagans did. They, those men practiced emasculating themselves as part of pagan worship. So, these these uh, things that God, you know, and it's like that with all commands, even the commands of our day. Um, all these commands are timeless in their principles. You know, we don't follow the law of the Old Testament uh, because Jesus came to fulfill the law. But those laws are meant to restrain evils in our society. Uh, through common grace, God puts the, his laws. Everybody knows the difference between right and wrong. Okay? The law of God is written on our hearts. So we know what's right and what's wrong. So when you look at all these prohibitions that, that scripture has, it is so that we can be distinguished from unbelievers. So in this context, this is distinguishing Israel from the pagans. Pagans practice mutilation of the flesh. God's telling his people, you're not to be like them, basically. Uh, so that's kind of the spirit of this uh, law right here. The ones whose testicles were crushed or cut off, they should not enter into uh, worship. Okay? Because that's what pagans did. It would disqualify them from entry into the assembly that they did that. Okay? 
You can't worship God and worship paganism at the same time. You can't do those two things. We talked about that last week with what we call syncretism, where you try to mix pagan worship with Christianity. You can't do those things. Okay, those things are incompatible with one another. Okay? Excuse me, so the units were excluded because God's covenant was connected to the idea of seed. Okay? He gave the idea of seed. These men were meant to uh, reproduce. And then it goes to children who are of uh, basically unmarried parents or born out of incest or illegitimate birth. It says, no one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. Now, we don't know what uh, illegitimate birth means, but some Jewish scholars, uh, from what I was researching, they meant children who were born from uh, incest, incestual relationships. Okay, and some talked about mis mixed marriages between uh, pagans and uh, the people of Israel. So they were saying that these children were uh, illegitimate. So these. Again, this is the reason why this law was was to keep the spiritual purity of Israel intact. Okay, so you have a pagan and a Israelite coming together and having children that presented a problem uh, in the camp because you have this child who has a parent who's a pagan, and so. That made that child, in this sense, it made their child um, illegitimate. And the mixed marriage thing was definitely a problem with Israel. Uh, in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah dealt with that. Nehemiah 13, I remember when I preached to Nehemiah, we, we talked about that. Uh, the Jews had married the women of Ashdod, uh, Ammon, and Moab. And Nehemiah refers to that in Nehemiah 13 and, and 23. But this was a problem for Israel when they had these marriages with these uh, pagans. So because of that, the children that were born to those unions uh, were excluded from um, worshiping God. And so this shows us that parents, when they come together in Israel, they must consider how they're asking to protect their children. If you're in a married pagan, your actions as, as married a pagan is going to affect uh, your child. It could also be a union with a, a cult uh, prostitute. So this would basically help deter the Israelites from enticing this kind of marriage. So looking at the punishment that was involved with it, why would you want to marry a pagan when this is the consequences of it? So it was a prohibition against that in order that you won't do it. Because look what will happen to you, Israelite, uh, Hebrew, if you marry a pagan woman or Hebrew woman who marries a pagan man. Look what's going to happen with your child. Your child's not going to be able to uh, participate in the worship of God because of your decision. So 
this command was a prohibition to do that. It was a deterrent, basically. If you do this, this will happen. Okay? So don't do that. Okay? Don't marry a pagan woman and have a child with her. Don't marry a pagan man and have a child with her. Because what's going to happen? Your child is not going to be able to uh, worship the Lord up until the 10th generation. The 10th generation basically uh, meant uh, forever. It was a Gideon for forever. 10 generations is about 250 years in a literal sense. But any mean literally 250 years. It just basically meant for uh, a really long time, basically. And that's what it meant for the 10th generation. So notice it says, born of a forbidden union. What are those forbidden unions again? Incest. Marrying pagans uh, with the prostitutes. Okay, those were forbidden unions. Hebrews wanted to marry other Hebrews. Paul tells us, I think it's 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 6, uh, to not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. A believer, a Christian, should not, uh, what is it, business dealings with unbelievers, especially intimate business dealings. But also they can refer to relationships. A Christian should not marry a non-Christian. Because those two can't walk together and agree. You have two different worldviews. You have a true religion and a false religion together. That's going to cause conflict in a marriage. You may have mind you not a believer. Christian is going to cause problems. I mean, when I was in college, when I was young, dumb, and stupid, I was, you know, before I met Fran, I, I was dating... Uh, dated a couple of girls, and, and uh, they weren't believers. I was going to church. They didn't want to go to church with me. And they were saying, well, they didn't want me to go to church. And I was a youth pastor. I was like, no, I'm going to church. Number one, because I'm a believer, I love the Lord, I love the church, and I'm a youth pastor. I'm not going to stop not going to church. Because what's going to happen is, I'm going to let her influence me, and then they say, no, I won't be going to church at all. Because I don't want to be influenced by her unbelief, or her being an unbeliever. There will be a forbidden union. A Christian marriage and a non-Christian is a forbidden union. Because, man, there's going to be some big problems. How you raise your children, how you handle finances, all those things that have a Christian worldview, your spouse is not going to have that. Your husband or your wife is not going to have that. And guess what? It's going to cause problems. That's why those forbidden unions are important. They're, they're prohibitions to protect us and also to protect our children. So this forbidden union, God said no. Because the child born of that uh, would not be able to enter into the assembly of the Lord. And there were consequences for that. Then it goes on to the forbidding of people, certain people groups, Ammonites and Moabites. Now, there were exceptions to this. One of them was Ruth. Uh, we read, you know, we read through uh, the books of the Bible earlier this year. Ruth was one of the books that we were reading. And Ruth, Ruth was a Moabite. She was a Moabite. She was the exception. She was an exception. Why? Because she became a believer. In the Lord. 
Okay? So he was a Moabite because he married uh, Boaz. Okay? That's an exception. But overall, these Hebrews were not to marry. I'm, I'm sorry. Have any dealings with the Ammonites. Because an Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. Basically, means never. None of his descendants shall enter forever. And why? God gave the cause. Because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Peor. So uh, we're going to look at that passage here. Now, the Moabites and the Ammonites not only treated Israel cruelly, which they did on the way to the promised land, but they had a disgraceful beginning. The Moabites and the Ammonites, uh, Moab and Ammon were the two sons born to the daughters of Lot. Turn to Genesis 19. I'm going to show you where the Moabites and Ammonites came from. It shows you the origin of this, this nation. So Genesis 19 is the Sodom and Gomorrah passage. This was after in verse 30. This is after Lot and his family had escaped Sodom and Gomorrah. And you know, Lot's wife turned around and was turned to a pillar of salt, you know, so forth and so on. But this was after that. So it says in verse 30, then Lot went up to Zorah and dwelt in the mountains, and his two daughters were with him. For he was afraid to dwell in Zor, and he and his two daughters dwelt in the cave. Now the firstborn said to the younger, to the older sister said to the younger sister, Our father is old, and there is no man on earth to come to us, as is the custom of all the earth. So they're basically saying there's no man around, no man that we can, you know, marry, but our father's here. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose, so he must have been mighty drunk. It happened on the next day that the firstborn said to the younger, Indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make drink. Sorry, let us make him drink wine tonight also. And you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. Isn't that something? So they both laid with their father, got him drunk, and laid with him, committing the sin of what? Incest. And they tried to justify it by saying that, you know, they, they were two girls and there were not any men around. 
So they just labeled that without the grave sin. Mm -hmm. Now, this in verse 37, the firstborn bore a son and called his name what? Boaz. Mm -hmm. That's where the Moabites that's where the Moabites came from. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben Ami, which means son. Ben, the prefix Ben means son of. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. So this explains the origin of the Moabites and Ammonites. And think from that union, those Moabites and Ammonites became pagan nations because of an unholy union. So, this is where that nation came from. Now, the Moabites and the Ammonites also gave Israel trouble in the wilderness. Okay? The story of Balaam took place in Numbers 26 and 24. I remember we kind of studied that when Balaam was uh, paid to go prophesy against Israel, but every time he opened his mouth, God had turned his curse to a blessing. Now, this was the same Balaam that the donkey, you know, spoke to. This was the same, same Balaam. So, they did not meet them with bread and water along the way. They were not fair to them. Okay? So, God had uh, said that they were going to be their enemies. So, Moabites and Ammonites became arch enemies of Israel. So that's why they were forbidden to be in the assembly. Because of how they treated Israel. God gave the reason and the cause for that. Now, since in verse 5, the Lord did not listen to Balaam, of course, who said, The Lord turned the curse into a blessing for you. And that's found in Numbers uh, 22 through 24. Uh, Four, chapters 22 to 24. The Lord, when I listen to Balaam, verse 5, it said, He turned the curse to a blessing for you because the Lord does not love you. You should not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. In other words, you should not seek help from them for any reason. You should not seek help from them at all, no matter what. This was a perpetual curse that God had on them. You should not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days. In other words, don't make peace deals with them. Don't seek their prosperity. If they have and you lack, don't do it. At all. You don't seek it. So, what, what's a good principle for this? We can't make unholy alliances as Christians with pagans. Even if they have more than what we have. Even if they have resources that we could use. We don't make alliances with them. Okay? Listen, I'll give you a perfect example. If we're trying to do something in the community, right? 
and you have a the Wiccan community, you know, the, the witches, they're going to practice witchcraft. You know, hey, they want to help take care of some children. So they say, hey, they come out to and say, hey, can y'all, can y'all partner with us in um, uh, going to Wes Anderson and hosting a free food giveaway, whatever. We'll take care of all the food. You know, we'll, we'll bring all supplies. We just want y'all to show up and help us distribute. That sounds like a good thing. But those are pagans. Why would we partner with them? That's an unholy alliance. Although it's for a good cause, it's still an unholy alliance between Christianity and paganism. You know, they may say they'll supply everything. Okay? Don't seek their prosperity. Don't make peace deals with them. Just go without. As Christians, we cannot make unholy alliances with pagans. Again, it goes back to the unequally yoked that Paul talked about. Go to Corinthians there. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Business dealing with unbelievers. Partnerships with unbelievers. Because we have a drastically different worldview from unbelievers. So, Israel, same thing. They should have no type of dealings with the Ammonites or the Moabites at all for any reason. Don't seek their peace. Don't seek their prosperity. At all. For no reason. And God gave the reason because of how they treated them in the desert and how they sent the prophet Balaam to prophesy against them. Now verse 7 says, you shall not have four in Edomite for he is your brother. What's special about the Edomites? How well do you know your Bible history? The Edomites descended from Esau. Remember the Genesis account, Esau was Jacob's brother. Remember you had two brothers, you had Esau and Jacob. Esau was the one who sold his forge for his birthright uh, because he was deceived by his brother Jacob, he sold his birthright to Jacob, and then <laughs> uh, Isaac, um, uh, Jacob had put on the, uh, I think, what, what kind of skin, I forgot what kind of skin he put on to make his skin rough. His father, you know, Isaac was blind and everything, and he felt the skin, and, and uh, it felt rough like Esau's, and he ended up giving Jacob Esau a blessing, and Esau was the oldest child, he was firstborn, and Jacob deceived his father to give him that firstborn blessing. Of course, Edom, Esau, sought to sought his brother's life. <laughs> and so, this this is who the Edomites descended from. The Edomites were descendants of Esau. So they were not to uh, abhor them. So the Edomites were ethnically related to Israel. Because of Israel's brother Esau. So they were not to abhor them. He says, nor shall you abhor an Egyptian. Now why was this? Now the Egyptians were the ones who kept Israel in slavery for almost 400 years. Now, 
why did God tell them not to afford a new business? A couple of reasons. Number one, although the Egyptians had Israel in slavery, that was God's great purpose for Egypt. So that his glory could be manifested by Pharaoh. That was God's sovereign purpose. So Israel was like a mother's womb, basically, for, for Israel. Okay, Israel came in, I think it was about 70 of them after Joseph died. And then by the time that 40 years of captivity was over, they were a nation of 2 3 million people. So Egypt was like a, a holding place. And they were also being used by God to help this nation grow and come out as a distinct nation. So Israel, although they were holding, I'm sorry, Egypt, although they were holding Israel in, in captivity, they were still being used by God for an ultimate purpose. A purpose the Israelites didn't know about at that time as a nation, as they grew, and the purpose that Egypt didn't know, and all their pharaohs that ruled them. They had no idea that this was going to be used for a greater purpose. <clears throat> so that's one reason why. And another reason is because of Joseph. Remember the story of Joseph, his brother sold him into slavery? And he was taken up and sent to Egypt where he was put in jail. And he ended up uh, interpreting a dream. He was at Potiphar's house. And uh, he got put in jail unjustly for 13 years, I think. And then uh, the baker and the, I forgot, was the baker, the candle maker were in jail. And he, he, he prophesied. Yeah. Uh, they interpreted the dreams. They told Pharaoh about it. One of them was killed, the other one wasn't. And then Pharaoh came to him. Uh, gave him the vision of the seven cows and the seven fat cows and skinny cows and, the, you know, and he interpreted there's going to be seven years of feast and the seven years of famine, so on and so on. And then when that happened, uh, Pharaoh saw the wisdom of Joseph and raised him up to be his second in command, his prime minister, basically. So this Pharaoh showed favor to Joseph. He was the favorite son. And so that's the other reason why they were not to afford the uh, Egyptians. One, because of, of their favor to Joseph, and two, because of God's great purpose for them in having Israel enslaved. So this shows us that even evil plans that man has can be used by God. To accomplish his purposes. And through common grace, God does show grace towards sinners. And that's the other gospel, just the gospel gospel message in this passage right here. Why show favor to the Egyptians? These people held Israel in slavery for 40 years. They were harsh to them. So much that the people cried out to God. This shows God's grace and mercy towards us as sinners. We deserve to be abhorred by God. To be to abhor means to detest. Like something that's just sick in your in your in your nostrils. God abhors sin. He abhors sinners. 
But in his grace and mercy, guess what? He shows that to us. He shows us his grace. He shows us his mercy. The Egyptians did not deserve this type of faith. They didn't because they enslaved God's people. Before they were called God's people, they enslaved them. But God showed mercy to the Egyptians. He asked asked the Israelites to show mercy toward them. That is what God does for us. He shows us mercy because we don't deserve it yet. But he still shows it to us. Amen? Amen. And so now we deal with cleanliness and uncleanliness in the camp. Verses 9 through 14. It says, when you are encamped against your enemies, you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. If any man among you becomes unclean because of a nocturnal emission, then he shall go outside the camp. He shall not come inside the camp. But when evening comes, he shall bathe himself in water, and as the sun sets, he may come uh, inside the camp. You shall have a place outside the camp. You shall go, and you shall go out to it. You shall have a troll with your tools, and when you sit down outside, you shall dig a hole with it and turn back the cover of your excrement. That's what right there is excrement. Or excrement is there. Because the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give up your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy, so that you may not see anything indecent among you and turn away from evil. Cleanliness is important to God. That's what this shows. This is cleanliness that the people must have. So, uh, this was a cleansing ceremony that the Lord was uh, talking about. In Leviticus uh, 15, kind of explains it. And we, we went over that. But the main thing that they are to remain uh, ceremonially uh, clean. So it says, when the army goes out against your enemies, then keep yourself from every wicked thing that is anywhere among you, because I'm clean by some occurrence in the night. That's what the NASB says, a nocturnal emission or uh, occurrence in the night, then you shall go outside the camp, and you shall not come into the camp. Okay, so the cleansing ceremony must be observed and they didn't come back into the camp again. Now, there was also sanitary cleanliness that was important too. You should have an implement among your equipment. So this is talking about if a person has to go. You know what I mean? You got in the woods somewhere, you need to go. And guess what? You need to do what? Clean up by yourself, basically. Okay? You should have a piece, a place outside the camp where you may go out. You should have an implement among your equipment. And while you, when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and turn and cover your refuse. Refuse is, you know, basically go out and do number two. Yeah, exactly. If you have to dig a hole, you know, and cover it up. Can't just have lumps all over the place like cows or horses in the pasture. <laughs> so this is basically showing cleanliness. Clean, 
Holiness is important for believers. Okay? Holiness is important in the camp. And we should, uh, you know, we don't want to annoy our neighbors. And we want to exercise modesty. Okay? And we want to be considerate of our neighbors. We don't want to be like the pagans who just dump stuff out wherever. Remember, they didn't have public restrooms and indoor plumbing back then. They didn't have our houses. <laughs> you know, they just, wherever they went, they went. I'm sure they had like certain spots or places or whatever. Uh, but they didn't have like our houses. But they, you know, wherever they went, they went. But the main thing was to practice cleanliness. In other words, don't be like the pagans. The pagans probably didn't have an implement like a shovel or something with them to cover up their dung. They probably just did whatever and went wherever, and then that was it. Didn't think about covering it up. But Israel was to have a, uh, you know, a higher standard of cleanliness. You know, Booker T. Washington in his uh, book up from slavery. You know, Booker T. Washington helped found Tuskegee. It was Tuskegee Institute back then. It was a hometown. It was now Tuskegee University. In his book up from slavery. Let's talk about how the students built the school, which they did. And he had this saying that I used to, I had, uh, I had the slogans on my wall and stuff in my classroom. One of, uh, one of his sayings was, cleanliness is next to godliness. That was one of Booker T. Washington's famous quotes. Cleanliness is next to godliness. He believed in the campus being clean. He believed in the students keeping their dorm rooms clean, keeping the campus clean. You know how few when you walk into a place that's clean? It's just, whether it's a doctor's office or a restaurant or any type of public place, especially a hotel, lobby, or just wherever, a service station, you know, outside at the pumps. You know, if you go to a place where it's for a neighborhood, people keeping their neighborhoods clean. Cleanliness says something about how you care for the things that you have. Your yard should be clean. You shouldn't have trash strewn out the yard and, and stuff like that. It's, it's something. It's something to say about cleanliness that just looks like you're, you're a good steward. You're taking care of things, keeping a clean yard. It doesn't have to be perfect, but just keeping a clean yard is 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 a, is a good sign of godliness. When you care about the appearance of the yard, remember. Israel was representing who? God. As Christians, we're representing the Lord also. So we want to make sure that we keep our spaces clean. Hey, we want to keep the inside of our cars clean. You know, some people call it look like they, they, they live inside of cars. Right? <laughs> I mean, you got just junk and paper and trash. I'm like, have you heard of the addiction problem with trash cans? <laughs> you know, or go to all these dumpsters and just dump everything out. But some people just, oh, oh. And I'm like, how can they live like that? I can just eat something, just, I just can't. I, I, I just can't fathom it in my mind. I got a little trash bag in my car because I want to get you. Like, you know, whenever I eat in the car or whatever, I, I put the trash right there in that bag. You know, my, my, my car, man, look at friends. It's not junk in there. 
I can't. I just can't. It's, it's, it's just something about it. I keep my yard clean. Um, you know, don't like loose paper and trash and stuff. Drive by some people's house, you're like, man, didn't I even live there? That's on a porch. I mean, just not. That's that's not that's not godly. I wouldn't think. So, cleanliness in Israel was important in how they did their business. They were not clean; they had to go outside the campus if they became clean. Then it goes on to some uh, uh, miscellaneous laws. We're going to go through these uh, in short order. It says, verse 15, you should not give up to his master, a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose, within one of your towns, wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. Now, this is talking about uh, property here. So, basically, now, in, in this context, in this passage, a refugee slave uh, was most likely a, a foreigner and not an Israelite slave. So that's who it was talking about. But even if it was a foreigner, guess what? You are to treat them right. Okay, so the refugee slave referred to basically someone who was from one of these foreign nations. Okay? So you are to even treat them right. If you do have slaves, if they escape from their master to someone else, to the Israelites, guess what? He could dwell in your midst, in the place that he chooses. And you should not do what? Oppress him. This this is the biblical way to do slavery. Now, unfortunately, in the United States, uh, uh, shallow slavery was, was not done in the biblical way, in a lot of ways. Okay? Because they had the Fugitive Slave Act, where if a, a slave escaped to a free state, that they were supposed to send that type of slave and send it back to their uh, original plantation or their original owners. You know, that's that's wrong. That was wrong. They implemented that. But uh, slavery is something that was practiced worldwide, not just in the United States. Because that, that form of slavery was a wrong form of slavery. It wasn't biblical. But here in the scriptures, God shows the right way to do it when someone escaped like a pagan slave and came into Israel, Israel was to treat them well. Remember, I always say this. The Bible was always good to women, to children, and even to slaves. Doing things good with Christianity, doing it in a biblical way, is always good for those groups of people. Children farewell under Christianity, Women farewell under Christianity, even slaves farewell under Christianity. Slave has been around, it has been a practice for thousands of years. But if done biblically, it's not a terrible, terrible thing. At least in this context. It wasn't just property, they were to treat them well. Again, separate them from our paganism. Paul wrote a letter to Philemon about Onesimus. That's what this letter was about. Onesimus was a slave, and he wrote to Philemon as a brother, saying that, hey, when Onesimus come back to you, treat him like a brother. 
That's what that's what Paul uh, was saying to. I guess let's let's turn to that right quick. Turn to Philemon. Philemon is after I think Second Timothy. That's what uh, the letter to Philemon was about. Right after uh, Second Timothy. I'm sorry, after Titus. Okay, he writes to Philemon, who's a dear brother. Talk about his love and faith. Verses 4 and 7. Then he goes into his letter right quick in verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ's commandment to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, he's talking about his child, a spiritual child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you receive me. In other words, receive him as a brother. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge it to my account. I fall right this morning, I will repay it to say nothing of your own me, even your own self. Yes, brother. I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. So Paul was saying, when Onesimus comes back to you, don't treat him as a slave, but treat him as a what? As a brother. That's Christianity was good in that sense of slaves and treating them right. Because guess what? Masters had a master also above them. Paul said this in, in Colossians. He said, slaves, be obedient to your masters. And masters, you treat your slaves well because you have a master also. So Christianity was good even for slaves. If it was done right, if it was done well. All right, back to our passage in Deuteronomy here. Next was prostitution. Verse 17, 19. There shall be no ritual harlot of the daughters of Israel or a perverted one of the sons of Israel. You shall not bring the wages of a harlot or the price of a dog to the house of the Lord, the God, for any vow offering. For both of these are an abomination to the Lord, the God. A ritual harlot was basically a female prostitute. And a perverted one refers to a male prostitute. So the Bible... Scripture forbade 
male prostitutes and female prostitutes. Scripture forbade them. And why? Who practiced this type of prostitution? The pagans. Israel was not supposed to be like the pagans. Okay? Now, in 1 Kings, under Asa and Josiah, the perverted persons of the male prostitutes were expelled from Israel. So that meant that there were those prostitutes and they were allowed to practice this prostitution in Israel. Obviously, they forgot this law. So the men were not prostitute themselves, and the women were not too. Do you know that even being a what we call stripper or like they try to dress it up now, exotic dancer, adult entertainment, that's a form of prostitution. When men or women do it. You see the stories of the movies of the bachelorette party where they hire a male stripper to come dressed up like a police officer or something like that. That's prostitution. That's forbidden by scripture. That's not to be practiced among Christians. Christian women's Christian women should have a bachelorette party where they have a male stripper coming in. Christian men shouldn't have a bachelor party where they have a female stripper coming in. That's prostitution. That's supporting, that's promoting prostitution. That's not being named amongst the saints. That's something that pagans do, not true believers. That's what ritual harlot was when they converted them. He says, let me bring the wages of a harlot to pay a female prostitute. And the pay of a male prostitute is like the price of a dog. Yeah, you see that? It's like the price of a dog. They were not to be offered to the Lord. Because this is what the cults did in the ancient world. God didn't want their money. Okay? Don't bring their wages for the price of a dog to the house of the Lord. Because it was basically dirty money. Then it talks about charging interest. And all these deal with their relations with each other. You should not charge interest to your brother, interest on money or food or anything that is lent out of interest. To a former you may charge interest, but to your brother you shall not charge interest. That the Lord your God may bless you in all that which you set your hand to do in the land which you are going to possess. So don't put your money to usury. Okay? So if uh, Brother Harvey take a uh, Pastor Mark, can I borrow $20? Sure. Uh, and then pay that payment $25. I'm not supposed to do that to him as a brother. Okay? Now you can do it to foreigners. Now, to, to take a loan in ancient times was basically an act of uh, desperation, so to speak. But can't charge cruelly high interest rates. That's what usury is. And the the prohibition against interest protected the poor. You know who's hurt the worst by unjust un, uh, interest rates? Poor people. They're hurt 
Poor people are hurt the most by high interest loans. Because interest is so high, it's hard to it's hard to even pay on the principal. Because the interest is so high. And just because it's legal doesn't mean that it's right. Okay? Just because law says, yeah, you can go you can go get a, a cash advance and pay $87.50 to get a $5 loan. That's that's wrong. That's too much. Just because it's legal doesn't mean that it's right. Exactly. You're not really paying it down. And most people can't pay it down. So that's that's why that's wrong. So you're not to, to, to charge interest to your, your, your brother, your fellow Christians. Christians should not treat each other like that. And then it talks about vows here. When you make your vow to the Lord, your God, you should not delay it. But the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it will be sin to you. But if you abstain from vows, it shall not be sin to you. That which is gone from your lips, you shall keep and perform. For you voluntarily vow to the Lord your God what you promise with your mouth. In other words, don't make harsh vows to the Lord or to anyone else. Be a person of your word, right? It's an old saying, your word is your bond. Be a person of your word. Don't, don't, don't bear false witness. A vow before God is your is no small thing. Oh Lord, if you just deliver me out of this situation, I promise you, uh, I did it when I was young as a Christian. I did. Oh, if you just about this situation, I'll, I'll come to church every Sunday. You know, I'll give more if you get me out of this debt. You know, stuff like that. You make those vows, and then you get out of that debt, or when you do. You are able to go to church or, or whatever the case may be. Yep, it fades away. You forget about it. You can't make those rash vows. It says, because the Lord will require it of you, and it will be sin to you. Now, the sad thing is that in, in many circles today, uh, the breaking of an oath is just standard business practice, standard operating procedure. But before God, it is sin. That's why perjury is a crime. You swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth to help God. And if you don't do that, that's committing perjury. Why? Because you swore before the Lord. The Lord's going to require of you to do what? Tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So the breaking oath before God is a it's, it's a sin. It's a breaking oath. It's simply a sin. So this keeps us from, from making uh, rash vows. The best thing to do is to do what? Abstain from it. So we should be careful what we say. The Bible says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. That's James 5 and 12. I'm sorry, Matthew 5, Jesus said it here. Jesus didn't forbid oaths, as he said in Matthew uh, 5, but he talked about basically the integrity of our word. Let your yes be yes and your what? And your no be no. In other words, 
mean what you say. Yeah. But you have the choice to abstain. And Jesus also tells us to let, let no idle words come out of our mouth. We should be careful about idle speech. But we don't make vows that we can't keep. Don't make promises that we cannot keep. Let's be people of our word. Let's be reliable and trustworthy. If we tell people we're going to do something, we're going to see it through. Now, if something comes up and we can't, we let them know. We don't just, as the young people say, ghost them. For example, in my business in life, there's business people say, I'm going to call and I'm going to show up for my appointment, and then they don't show up and they don't call. They're not keeping their word. If something comes up, what's the thing? It's scheduled. A lot of people don't do that now. They don't. Yeah, that happens too. We as believers can't do that. If it's something that we can't do or something we can't fulfill, we should let people know. Hey, I, I, I know I said this, or I know I'll be there at that time, or I know I said I'll get it back to you this time. Can I, you know, can I do another time? People will respect you more if you do that. And we will. But also the better thing to do is to not make those vows at all. Okay? They're going to do something. Exactly. They're going to do it and they don't do it. Exactly. The last thing here is the right to glean or to take from our vineyards and to travel. Come to your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat the fruit of the grapes and the pleasures. You should not put any in your finger. Coming to your neighbor's standing grain, you may cut the bread with your hand, but you shall not pick it of your neighbor's standing grain. In other words, basically, if you're traveling along the way, you can pick a few grapes or heads of grain along the way. But don't go out there and try to reap a whole harvest. It reminds me of, uh, you know, we was growing up. This is what Pascal had in the old neighborhood. You know, you had little blackberry bushes and palm trees and stuff. You know, we would like pick grapes, grapes from the grapes, not grapes, but uh, palms or pick a little blackberry and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, just eat them, you know, then wash them or whatever. Sometimes we didn't take them home and wash them, but, you know, we just did that. But we go out there with a, you know, trying to cut them down and, you know, bring a whole bunch of them uh, home. You know, that's not what we're supposed to do. You know, you are supposed to harvest. It's like providing for your immediate needs. So, this is just their law. It's basically respecting your neighbor's property, not defrauding them or keeping them from uh, their standards of living. Of course, I don't think anyone will walk near somebody's yard that has some, some clones or whatever, unless it is out in the wild somewhere that steals someone's property. You go out there to digging up the tree and going and planting in your yard or, or just taking the whole thing, you know, taking all the grapes off or, or, or something like that, then that's when it becomes becomes a sin. Because all land is someone's land. Even if it belongs to the state or to a city or it's a right away. The main thing, the main principle is this being considered of someone else's uh, property. That's the main thing. 
It wasn't an excuse for chaos. But it was also teaching Israel how to be generous to other Israelites, not end up traveling. You know, you could take a few grapes or whatever, but don't just try to beat the whole. Don't take a sickle to it and say, like with the wheat, or just take cut, cut down the whole harvest of wheat. Just take a little bit here and there. Take it to every fellow uh, brother or sister. Uh, but then, you Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's good. That's what I thought about. Mm-hmm. That's good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's good. 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 So let's pray as we close. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the principles that your word set forth. Lord, help us to obey them faithfully, um, to learn from these principles, and to live uh, by the ones that have been applied uh, to us. And to bless your word tonight, Lord, your work in our hearts, and uh, cause us to live by the words that we have heard. In Christ's name, amen.